Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Lydia Denworth will join us to discuss friendship. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, friendship, it's important for all of us, but can it really influence our biology, our psychology, and even have influenced our evolution? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Lydia Denworth. Ms. Denworth is a Brooklyn-based science journalist whose work is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. She's a contributing writer for Scientific American and Psychology Today, and has also written for The Atlantic and The New York Times. She has penned the new book, Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. And Ms. Denworth, thank you so very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. It's certainly a fascinating book you've written here, Friendship, in which you explore the bonds that humans have. How did you become interested in the subject and decide to write the book? Well, as a science journalist, I spend a lot of time at conferences listening to scientists talk to each other, and that's how you find out what they're interested in and what's new and what's happening. And I was at a meeting where I heard people talking about this kind of new attention to the science of social behavior in general, and I was really fascinated. I usually cover the brain, and I think about mapping connections between neurons in the brain, and I realized that these scientists were thinking about how important it was to map the connections outside of our bodies. And then in addition to that, I mean, they talk about all kinds of relationships and social behavior, but friendship sort of leapt out at me as something that we don't think of as applying to hard science, and yet it absolutely does. And that's what these last sort of 10 to 15 years of work have really shown. And the other part of it was totally personal. I was at a point in my life where my kids were growing up, my parents, I'm losing my parents, and you're looking ahead and saying, oh, I better make sure that my friendships are in order. And I thought, well, this would be a really good, interesting way to spend a few years. And maybe I would get something personally important out of it as well. You know, a lot of people intuitively sense at least friendships have an important role in our life. But why is it that science has been lukewarm to the idea or at least investigating this scientifically? Yeah, you know, for so long, um, we, we know it's not that we haven't valued friendship. We valued it enormously, but we haven't thought of it as having an effect on biology. And that's the piece of the story that's new. And so it's kind of that people think of friendship as pleasurable, but not essential, maybe, or as valuable, but not invaluable. And in fact, what it is, is invaluable. And this new work shows how it affects our mental and physical health and how there has been this evolutionary drive for not just humans, but other um, species to connect in this meaningful way and to, to build. Different species have different abilities, but among other primates, monkeys and apes, there are these very strong bonds that look a lot like friendship. To that end, how widespread does something like friendship appear in the animal kingdom? Friendship has been found in all kinds of species. It's mostly mostly mammals. I mean, monkeys and apes and elephants, zebras, horses. But there are even things you see in animals like zebrafish. 
if they smell friends or familiar fish, they are less likely to engage in freezing behavior than if there are strange fish around. Sheep recognize the faces of sheep that they grew up with, even if they've been separated for years. And dolphins have friends and are playful and, and have a good time together. It exists all over the place. And the thing that was striking, one reason, in addition to thinking that it was kind of squishy or relevant to biology, friendship is also a little bit hard to define and measure. I mean, so it's maybe one of these things that we think we know it when we see it, but we're not always able to say exactly what it is. And so one thing that changed was that, especially in studying animals, scientists were able to narrow band a little bit what they were, the behaviors and traits that they were looking at. And then they started to get a baseline definition of, of what a good friendship, a close social bond looked like. And it had three things. It had to be long-lasting and stable. It had to be positive. And it had some reciprocity or cooperation. And, and just those three things. And, you know, obviously in humans, we have much more complicated, complex relationships. And they bring, we bring in a lot of other things like trust and loyalty and affection. But if you've got those basics, you're on your way to a good relationship. And once they were able to do that, figure that out, those are the bonds that have the biggest effect on our health, those quality friendships. Does this also apply to the bonds that people have with their pets, which can oftentimes feel as emotional as those with other humans? Yeah, it can. You know, it's funny. I confess that I hadn't really thought about that very much while I was working on the book, but I have been asked it consistently pretty much every day that <laughs> I've been talking about this book and publicity. So it's, especially, it's clearly something that is on people's minds. And as soon as I thought about it, I realized, yes, absolutely. When you make eye contact, for instance, with another human being, it primes the communication parts of your brain and the, and the parts of your brain that are ready to interact and be social, and also the language parts of your brain. Now, that's not what's happening with animals. You know, I have a golden retriever. When I look at my golden into my golden retriever's eyes, it may not be triggering the language parts of my brain, although it might because of the way we, we talk to our pets. But what it does trigger are those wonderful, what they call the happiness hormones, things like oxytocin and dopamine and endorphins that make you feel good. And I'm sure that we get that from our interaction with our pets. Regarding the biology, of course, imagine how it affects our mental health, the changes in our brain, but uh, can also affect cardiovascular systems or immune systems as well. And that is really the thing that, for me, is the most fascinating. It's the new news, I suppose you could say here, that you take the immune system. What they've come to understand is that either being very lonely or very well-connected, working in different ways, so the very lonely, let me, let me simplify it. So the loneliest people are more susceptible to inflammation and to viruses. And the reason they are is because there are actual changes in the way their immune system, the genes in their immune system are expressed. And so to make them more susceptible to their anti-inflammatory things are down and their antiviral things. So they're, they get sicker. Vice versa is true. If you're more socially connected and less lonely, you're more likely to be healthier in those ways. And the idea that a social relationship that exists outside the body, it could have that effect on biology is not obvious. And it took scientists quite a while to kind of make that leap. But it was when they started doing big studies of thousands of people in different communities, like the Framingham Heart, Alameda County in California. And then they just counted. They, they asked people about how many connections they had or how many close relationships. They had different kinds of questions depending on the study. But, and then they waited and they counted like nine years and 20 years and they, and they looked at who 
was alive and who was dead. And, and what they found was that the people who had the least connections at the beginning ten, were the ones most likely to have died by the time they went and started counting. And that was fascinating. And that, that is the moment when public health people and epidemiologists and then biologists started to say, we need to look more closely at what it is that these social relationships might be doing inside the body, in the biology. And how much have they learned then about the biology? Do you understand what's going on or is it still something of a mystery? There's a lot we understand. There's a lot more we understand than, than when they started. Um, there are still plenty of questions to be answered. But for instance, the, what I was just explaining about how the, the gene expression changes according to how connected you are, that's a very specific example. Another thing is your cardiovascular functioning. So when someone is young, a college student, and they report higher levels of loneliness, there are signs of what is kind of technical, but it's some change in the peripheral resistance in their cardiovascular system. So when your blood vessels, they enlarge and they, they tighten up, there's a change in lonely college students that by itself is not so terrible. But if it's left unchecked, it can lead to high blood pressure and other problems. And sure enough, when they went and looked at loneliness in older adults, that's what they found, full-blown problems in their cardiovascular functioning. And so the thinking is that if it starts when you're young and then it has time to develop, it leads to these various um, conditions that are not good for our health. Does friendship's role change as we age, or what do we know about friendship with age? Basically, friendship is a lifelong endeavor. And so you need to be invested in it the whole time. And we worry a lot about older adults now. And it's true that, you know, if somebody retires and they sort of suddenly cut out a lot of their social world, or if a spouse dies or friends and relatives start passing away, then there is a higher chance that someone will be lonely. But it's actually true that loneliness strikes people all through life. And it's a good idea not to wait to focus on socializing and making friends after you're done working or raising a family. Because by then, you can always make new friends, but it's better to have developed these, these strong relationships over your life. And it's also true that as you age, though, that the friendships can be just as protective as, say, being married. Um, and so that's good news because it means that even if someone is single or they lose their spouse, they absolutely can get protective benefits for their health from having a lot of friends and from interacting with a lot of other people. In today's age where the internet and things, we presumably have friends, but is that sort of the same quality of friendship that we need to gain all these benefits? No, <laughs> it's not. But social media and technology is not looking as terrible as we have been led to believe, um, especially when it comes to relationships, because in fact, what they find is that People who are more active on social media and more connected tend to have bigger social networks offline as well. And one of the things that's really important is that your offline life and your online life should sort of mirror each other, and they, and they usually do. Put it this way. A lot of people that you are friends with in your offline life, you are also friends with in your online life and vice versa. And the ones with whom you have the tightest relationships you're going to see them in multiple ways. And if social media is just an extra channel that you use to strengthen those bonds, then that's great and that works really well. Only connection is online, then that can have great value, especially for someone who is finds a community of people who share something like, a, like um, LGBTQ youth 
who are feeling alone and don't think there's anyone else out there like them, that can be really valuable. But for most people and most things, an online relationship is just limited. And all that said, so now I've said what's good about it. Of course, what is bad is that if there's a person sitting right in front of you who you want to interact with, you should put down your phone and you should look them in the eye and you should talk to them and focus on the people in front of you. It is to get those physical and health benefits, you really do need a good amount of in-person interaction. What about gender differences? I mean, certainly men and women might approach friendships in different ways. Does it have different effects or different values for different genders? It doesn't have different effects in that, you know, the same health benefits hold true for both genders. And there are differences. The stereotypical differences are that that women do friendships face-to-face and men side-by-side is what people say. And by side-by-side, they mean that, you know, men are more likely to maybe engage in an activity together or play sports or watch something on television, go to a bar rather than sit and talk the way women often do. And that, that is true, but what's also true is that when you ask men and women how much they value friendship, men actually value it about the same as women. And they're only a little less likely to disclose a lot of their emotions to their friends. So I think that the differences there's, are not as great as we, as we like to think. And also that men should be reminded that there are different ways to do friendship and that it doesn't all have to be self-disclosure and, and, you know, share, pouring out your, your deepest emotions. Although that said, men do when they do that, when they share um, more private information in the way that women are more prone to do. They, they always report that their relationships feel closer afterwards. Sometimes there are friendships that may be a little more toxic to our health. <laughs> yep. So what makes for a good friendship? A good friendship is one that really does make you feel good, that is positive, and that where you feel supported, where there's affection, a good friendship is usually one that's been around a long time. But it's also true that shared history is very powerful, but it's only one piece of a good friendship. And so if people change, which sometimes happens as we grow older or we sort of drift apart, that's okay. The other thing is that there's got to be this reciprocity and this kind of helpfulness. The three things I say is put in the time, be positive, and be helpful. Those are the core things that we need to think about when we're thinking about how we interact with our friends. And quality relationships matter more than quantity. So you should be putting time into, even if it's just a handful of close relationships, that's going to be the most sort of bang for your friendship buck. One important message is that I'm not trying to add to people's to-do list and say, you know, because while it is true that friendship is as important to your life as diet and exercise, I, I hope what people will take away is permission, a sense of permission to go hang out with their friends and not to feel that that's a lesser activity in their well-being than a lot of the other things you could spend your time doing, like doing your work or being with your kids every single night. Of course, you should do your work and you should be with your kids, but you should also make time for your friends. And, and if you do, you can know that you are benefiting. You're doing something good for your health. We were just talking with Miss Lydia Denworth. Her new book is Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Ms. Denworth, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
and that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>